Do you want the secret to achieving no-filter skin? It's not a $300 night cream or an exclusive celebrity beauty treatment. It's Curology. Their personalized skincare routines are affordable, efficient, and effective, and tailored to exactly what your skin needs. All you have to do is take their in-depth skin quiz and snap a few selfies, and a dermatology provider will have a custom skincare routine sent right to your door. Some of our faves include their brand new sunscreen that's designed by dermatologists and melts beautifully into the skin. No greasy residue or streaky finish, and their acne body wash with 2% salicylic acid. Curology also gives you access to prescription skincare from the comfort of your home. No trekking to the dermatologist's office or the pharmacy. Whether you're targeting acne, fine lines, or hyperpigmentation, it's time to ditch the one-size-fits-all drugstore products and reach for something that is tailored to you. Start your personalized Curology journey today at curology.com slash girlbossradio. That's curology.com slash girlbossradio. Subscription required, subject to consultation. Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Girl Boss Radio. I'm your host, Avery. I'm the founder of Bloom, a workplace design consultancy, and a firm believer that work should work for all of us. Today, I'm joined by Nadia Okamoto. Nadia is a social entrepreneur, outspoken period equality champion, and the founder of the period and menstrual brand, August. We went deep on this chat, discussing everything from period stigma and paid menstrual leave to the power of pleasure and rest. Let's get into it. Hello, Nadia. Welcome to Girl Boss Radio. I am so excited to have this conversation today. But first and foremost, how are you feeling? I'm feeling well, you know, end of the year coming up. I honestly think I'm just like really ready to sleep a little bit more over the holidays. Same. I think that a lot of people listening right now are probably reflecting on what their holiday break looked like. And I'm hoping that everyone had a lot of opportunity to get some R&R in. I'm really excited to learn a little bit more about your background, your career journey, because of course, I'm really familiar with what you're doing now, which I am totally aligned with. Before we get into that, I'm curious, what was your first ever job? It's hard for me to identify like what I would even consider my first job because obviously I was babysitting as soon as I could possibly do that. But I also like when I was in middle school, my dad ran an ice sculpting studio in New York and I had a relationship with him until I was like 17. And so starting in middle school, he would pay us like a dollar an hour and we would go into these big ice freezers by ourselves with a wood saw. And me and my two little sisters would like have these ice rods and we would cut them into cubes, hand cut them into cubes with a huge wood saw. And those were the square cubes that you see at like New York speakeasies and like fancy bars, you know, those like fancy hand cut squares. So that was like probably one of my first paid gigs. Wow, that is so wild. So we actually had a conversation with Matilda Dejerf and she was a fishmonger. And then now I'm having conversations with you. You're like, yeah, I was like a mini ice sculptor. Like that is... (laughs) The girl boss community, we have like a very um, unique and interesting career background. So that's, I'm really happy I asked you that question because I did not expect that. When you were growing up, did you ever think you were going to become an entrepreneur? No, not at all. You know, I think for me, I was really interested in law. The first kind of career goal I had was like, oh, I'm going to go to law school, become a public defender and do some sort of international law. Amal Clooney does human rights law. Like, that's what I want to do. You know, there was no sense of 
entrepreneurship. Even when I started my first nonprofit, I did not think it was going to be a career. I had no intention of it even becoming like a paid job. And so it's been a very unexpected journey. Wow. So growing up, you navigated poverty and being houseless. How did these experiences influence your journey to entrepreneurship? I started my first nonprofit when I was 16. And it was because I was really, really passionate about period poverty. Not that I had experienced period poverty, but I was really interested in like, what are basic necessities? Because my family was having to like cut dollars and really thinking critically about what were basic necessities. So when I learned about period poverty, and it was just this big privilege check of realizing even in these harder times, like I've never had to use trash to take care of my periods. Like, why isn't this an issue we talk about more? I was really passionate about it. There was no part of me at 16 that was like, my family needs me to make money. So I'm going to start a nonprofit, you know, like it was like, I'm passionate about this. My family also needs me to make money. So I'm going to have two to three other jobs at the same time of running the organization. But to me, the organization was like a passion project. I didn't even know you could get paid for that. You know, if you need to make money, like honestly, being an entrepreneur is not the way to go because like the startup years are your salary is low. You're starting from not very much at all. I think that for me, entrepreneurship is because I have the privilege of my passion becoming my profession. Yeah, yeah. And it seems like you have like a deep curiosity for people and stories and experiences. And I know that your experiences brought you closer to folks that had life experiences that were not the same as your own, which actually inspired your journey to starting your own nonprofit at a wildly young age, which is so cool. I'm not involved in the nonprofit anymore. I get asked a lot, like, what strategy had I built before I started it? And the answer is like, absolutely fucking none. I really originally thought, okay, I'm taught in school that if you care about an issue, you go find a nonprofit and you volunteer, right? Like you're encouraged to do community service hours. It has to be like a 501c3 organization. So I'm passionate about this issue. I'm obsessing over it. I'm going to find an organization to volunteer with. And I just couldn't find any. There were no organizations I could find online in my area or like in my Pacific Northwest region that were like publicly, like we're fighting period poverty. And for me, I was really passionate about the issue specifically here in the US. One from hearing the stories from homeless women that I was meeting, but also learning that at the time, 40 states in the US had the tampon tax, right? And so I was really passionate about the US. And so for me, it was just, okay, I can't find an organization. Someone needs to start it. What does it take to start an organization? And the whole premise of the nonprofit was really built around what I saw in my community over food drives, coat drives, you know, like in school, like from elementary school, you're doing like toy drives because you learn that people need toys, you know? So for me, it was like, people need period products. I'm just going to collect them or fundraise to buy them and then donate them. The organization was built kind of like off being that middleman. And then it just kind of evolved as I started to learn more about the issue and like develop my own theories of change. Right. So like I learned that shelters actually are the best places to be the distributors, not me as like volunteers walking around because people are already going to these shelters. So we're going to become the middleman to like get shelters and organizations period products. Then it was like kind of starting to realize that if we disappeared, we weren't making any systemic change. So we need to change the system itself. So it was kind of thinking through like, how do we get involved in policy? Oh, we can't change policy until we change culture. How do we change culture? I think as we learn more about the organization, the organization evolved, right? And in 2019, when I really decided I am ready to move 
on from one, the nonprofit space, but two, the organization has gotten to a certain point where I am not the best person to lead it. That's really when I had like prepared to raise enough money so I could replace myself. We did a national search for a new executive director and the organization is still going and growing and doing incredible work around sort of similar programmatic themes. So you mentioned that as an entrepreneur, you don't make a lot of money in the beginning and you'd suggested, you know, to people that are maybe looking to pursue entrepreneurship to not do it for money. I totally agree with that. I think that for me, I've been an entrepreneur now for five years. I made more money when I was working as an independent contractor without a team. And then for the first two years of having a team, I didn't pay myself, which was, by the way, PSA, very big mistake, shouldn't have done that, should have paid myself something. What drove you to kind of continue to pursue entrepreneurship beyond like the fact that you weren't making the money that you could be making and passion? What drives you to keep going? Well, it's different on the nonprofit side than it is on like being a venture backed CEO now, (laughs) you know, but I think entrepreneurship, as you're saying, it's very risky, right? It's high risk, high reward, right? When you go into especially company, like you're building towards, I don't know, potential profitability or potential exit. So like fellowships, what keeps me going now is also one, I love what I do, but I think entrepreneurship is fun because you see that tangible impact, right? Like it's so exciting to see what we're able to build in real time. I talk to my friends who work at much larger corporations and they're like, I just don't understand like what my work helps the bigger picture in the world. And I'm like, yeah, I don't have that issue at all, right? Like I work on something, I send an email out and then it's live, like it's very rewarding. So talk to me a little bit about August as someone that has a period and menstruates. I've actually used the products before and love them. Well, so August is a lifestyle period brand. We currently make tampons and pads that are more sustainable and ethically made and traceable. I really think that August is the collision of a lot of learnings I had through the first chapter of my career, right? Developing my own criticisms of capitalism and the nonprofit industrial complex and like acknowledging that we live in a consumerist capitalist world. And like that is where you can make influential changes like through the power of social business. I was working with every major period company for years because we were distributing millions of their products that were donated. So I learned all about the products and I learned about things like most pads take 500 to 800 years to decompose. And I could identify a solution where we could make pads that took 12 months to be biodegradable. So I think for me, like improving the product from sustainability, but also like I spent years trying to convince behind the scenes other brands to be gender inclusive, to not charge the tampon tax. And it was like pulling teeth, right? Like they had no capital incentive to make those changes. I was just like, oh, if I had my own brand, these are all the ways that I would do it differently, right? And for a few years, one of my other jobs was I was chief brand officer at a Gen Z marketing agency, where by the way, some of these brands were clients of mine, right? Like Procter & Gamble was a client of mine. And so for me, the frustration I had as a consultant being like, if only they would take my advice, is what we implemented at August. It's been really fun. You know, I think that since launching the brand, I'm now on TikTok, which I started as a way to get the brand out there. And it's now become like a whole part of my life. Yeah, but it's been really, really fun. We'll get to the TikTok in a bit, but I wanted to kind of chat a little bit about what you'd said about passion and frustration are two words that really kind of stood out to me. And I passion and frustration 
really are two really great combinations of motivators to move any sort of business forward or, or any sort of idea forward. And I think that that was something that I experienced in a unique and different way, but very similarly with the work that we do at Bloom. I had a deep frustration with the way that organizations would conduct business and treat people that would help to build those organizations. And then a big passion for solving some of those issues and really kind of building just different workplaces that work for everyone and not just for a very small demographic of the population. And I think that to your point, like that frustration that you felt as a consultant, it doesn't surprise me because a lot of these organizations, for the most part, that would create period and menstruation products were run and led by men. So of course, they weren't solving for a lot of issues that people that menstruate experience on a monthly basis. Okay. TikTok. So this is my first introduction to you was seeing you rocking out at a rave. There's a woman at a rave jamming out, dancing, having a good time. And you can see like their pad, like you're wearing underwear. The pad is very visible. And I remember like thinking, wow, good for her. Awesome. Why would you let your period stop you from enjoying your life and doing your thing? And why do we have to like be shameful and hide it beyond that? But when I was looking at the comments, I was shocked at the vitriol and some of the just like heinous remarks that you were on the receiving end of. A lot of people talk about the good things that come from TikTok and how it can really kind of push a brand and a business forward. But I know that you've been on the receiving end of some horrendous things as well. So talk to me a little bit about your journey as a founder and as an entrepreneur that's like pushing your product and your business on TikTok, whilst also being like deeply connected to like a broader systemic issue as it relates to like just empowering women and people that menstruate. When we launched the brand in June, 2021, like I was not on TikTok, like it was not something I was familiar with. And I honestly was kind of learning on the job. And one of the things about running a digital brand is that a lot of these companies raise a lot of venture capital money and then they spend it on Facebook to promote the product. So it's like you pay to buy customers. And I just really did not love that, you know, in terms of like, okay, so every company in the world just is reliant on Zuckerberg Corporation. We're just going to spend money to make money. And it didn't feel like super true authentic engagement. So I feel like I had this really big motivation to like grow organically and build a lot of like excitement and hype around the brand through not paid content, through really organic content. So for me, like I was looking at the world and I was like, oh, TikTok is just where people are. So I'm just going to try to figure it out. So I literally started posting 100 times a day and I posted 100 times a day for like six months. And I did not think it was going to work as well as it did. And it just started growing the early virality. And in six months, I had 2 million followers. Now I have 4 million followers a year and a half later, like it really scaled. And I would say that like, there is so much beauty to that. It means we've built an incredibly strong community. I've met people who have never talked about periods openly in their lives and are now like fans of August and use August and like post period content themselves. Like it's really been such a beautiful blessing. But yeah, it's also been really hard on my mental health. I've not gone a single day over the last year and a half taking a break from social media. And then there is the added part of periods are super controversial. I get videos taken down every single day for violating community guidelines for violent and graphic content. So not only am I like trying to fight the algorithm because this is a controversial thing to show, but I get death threats every day as so much hate for talking about periods, owning my period openly. And like the rave content, which is like me embodying my alter ego period fairy really pisses people off. And I'm surprised every day to just experience the period stigma because 
I've surrounded myself in my social circles with progressive leaning, mostly women of color. Around me, like I'm like, oh, we're all open about periods. When you're on TikTok, I'm connected to millions of people, some of whom think that periods are disgusting. And like, even if they get a period themselves, who've never heard about periods, stigma, don't think that it exists. And so for me, it's like constant exposure to people who like really disagree with me. That being said, I really like that because like I've always told myself any sort of activism or advocacy is like pushing against the status quo, which means that I think I would feel like I was just speaking into a vacuum to people who already agree with me if I wasn't getting any backlash. So I consider it part of my job and proof that I'm making some sort of incremental change. But yeah, it sucks. And it does affect my daily part of life from mental health, anxiety I have. I have higher security at my building and my building managers are on high alert when I get more death threats. And the unfortunate reality is it kind of feels like part of the job. And I've actually been thinking about this a lot in watching the whole Harry and Meghan Netflix series and seeing like the backlash against them and feeling like because they were public, because she married into this, she doesn't deserve any privacy and safety. Obviously, I'm at a very different scale, but I think that there's sometimes where I really gaslight myself into thinking well, like, I guess maybe this is what I signed up for. Like I make period content on a platform. I'm asking to go viral. Death threats are just part of the job. That's a very unfortunate understanding, but it feels very real to me because it has become so normalized in my life. Yeah, well, thank you so much for your vulnerability and for sharing all that. Victoria here, Girlboss's senior writer. One of my New Year's resolutions is to drink more water. I have a bottle that sits beside my desk and goes untouched literally for hours. Then I wonder, why do I have a headache by 2 p.m.? There has to be a better way to stay hydrated, right? That's why Waterdrop is such a game changer. Their sugar-free micro drinks make drinking water actually enjoyable, while also adding in extra flavor and vitamins. There's even a naturally caffeinated range for a healthier alternative to coffee. Just dissolve one of the delicious cubes made from natural fruit and plant extracts into 14 to 20 fluid ounces of fresh, cold water. Yep, it's that easy. By choosing Waterdrop, you save 98% of plastic and CO2 compared to beverages in single-use bottles. Plus, they collect and recycle one ocean-bound plastic bottle for every pack sold. So, what are you waiting for? Girlboss Radio listeners get 15% off with the code GIRLBOSS15. Head to go.waterdrop.com slash girlbossradio to quench your thirst and grab a cute water bottle in the process. That's go.waterdrop.com slash girlbossradio. Welcome back to my chat with Nadia. Next up, we get into the root of why period stigma still exists. Keep listening. Why do you think there's so much taboo around talking about menstruation and periods, even though this is something that over 50% of the population experiences for the majority of their life? Why is this so hard for people to accept and talk about? Patriarchy. I think that period stigma is just a symptom of and tool of patriarchy because what better way to minimize and limit the potential of women primarily and half the global population is to say something is biologically wrong with you and that makes you 25% less capable. I think that's the very extreme way of putting it. But like, even if you look at, let's think about foundational texts of society, right? Like the Bible. Genesis. In Genesis, God creates woman from the rib of man, in many translations, to be a helper to man. 
and from the rib of man so that she knows where she comes from. And when Eve in Adam and Eve commits the sin of eating the apple, punishment is painful childbirth and periods. So I think that even when you look at foundational texts of society in religion, Christianity primarily, periods are considered something dirty, something that's a punishment. I think at the same time, at its core of patriarchal misogynistic understanding is assuming that the purpose of women is to have babies, right? Biologically, when you get your period, it means you're not pregnant, right? And so I think like a very brutal way of putting it, if we like diminish the value of women life to be to bear children and to be like a baby factory, getting your period is a signifier of like failure to do that, right? And then you look at like, biologically, if the purpose of women is to like have babies, when you get your first period, that's when you're able to have babies, right? So like hitting puberty becomes like the beginning of so many different gender roles of being a wife and a mother and, you know, the gender roles around that. So I think the toxic and outdated understanding that like periods are tied to womanhood are tools of patriarchy and misogyny. And I think that when you look at how period stigma and period pain is then intersectional with race, right? Black women are three times as likely to have uterine fibroids. Uterine fibroids can be extremely painful, have heavy bleeding. Like then period stigma can even be used as a tool for racism and, you know, systematic oppression. And the amount of laws there are that uphold that, for example, food stamps not covering period products, the tampon tax signifying that periods are considered a non-essential good, prisons, shelters not covering period products, comprehensive sex education, comprehensive period education not being a thing. Like it is so obviously to me like a tool to uphold a lot of the injustices that we see in the world today. Honestly, I love that description and you did such a great job breaking it all down for reflecting back to my role as a DEI advisor and consultant. Ultimately, all of this works by design. This is not accidental. And it's interesting because you'd mentioned these societal texts. It's interesting because like in the text around Adam and Eve, they talk about when Eve bites the apple, what the punishment is. And yes, horrible periods and horrible births. But the other reflection is when I think about as someone that really cares about the system of work, one of the punishments also was like a life of labor. So they used capitalism and the system of work as a punishment for Eve taking a bite of the apple, which justified a lot of what was in the early days unpaid labor, aka slavery, and then what then evolved into the system of capitalism and work. So these societal texts, early day texts are very, very interesting concepts for me. So you're like speaking my language right now. <laughs> and I always have to preface, look, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with Christianity. I grew up Jesuit Catholic. I was an altar server, but I will say like, in college, I had just never read the Bible. And then I get to college, I'm reading the Bible in school. And I'm like, are you kidding me? Like, this is what my belief systems are built around. And I think that for me, it's really important as just a member of society to like really question your individual beliefs for yourself, regardless of what you're surrounded by growing up. And so I really struggle with my own religious beliefs, because I think it was a wake up call of realizing like, you can't deny that Christianity, Catholicism, especially is built around this text, right? Truly so many issues with it. And then when you think about even learning about in school, right? What was the tool used to justify slavery or colonialism? People were using the Bible, right? And so understanding like, how do we really question those beliefs and also acknowledging that it's all up for interpretation, right? We have so many different sects of Christianity because people interpret it differently. 
even in other cultures from positive experiences. Like there are many indigenous communities where religious or spiritual beliefs lead to positive celebration of periods. There are also places where it leads to very negative. And so I start to see like religion really contributing to these stigmas around periods. Yeah. And the patterns and the themes. And for anyone that wants to learn more about this, I read a book called Who Cooked the Last Supper? It is a book that captures the women's history of the world. And this is like a fantastic book that helps you better understand, in some cases, like period menstruation stigma. But then beyond that, how women have been historically like marginalized and oppressed on a global scale. So yeah, all this stuff works by design. And for you to talk about like your obsession and passion for really how do you destigmatize the period and menstruation conversation and, and empower women by way of that, I feel the same way about the system of work. And when I went from an academic level to better understand, like, when did work start? Why, why, why did we all start working? You know, what, what happened? It, it led me back to religion. And to me, I'm, I'm in full support of the nuance of people's religious beliefs, 100%. I think that being spiritually connected in any way is really important for people to not only survive, but to thrive. But I do think that kind of reflecting on if anyone's familiar with Adam Grant's work, he wrote a really good book called Think Again. And the book kind of basically says like, you can change your mind on things. It is okay to shift your perspective or your opinion, even like closely held belief systems that have helped you to navigate life for years and years and years are things that are okay for you to let go of. And I really love that concept. I think that people need to get better at being like, I changed my mind on this thing and that's okay. So this isn't like me encouraging people to change their thoughts on Christianity at all, at all. I'm just saying that it's something that I've embraced. <laughs> I'm thinking about the girl boss producers and wondering how they're going to feel about this conversation. <laughs> but uh, with that said, because I think we could talk about this for ages, I want to just acknowledge, like we've talked a lot about period administration. And we've talked about the system of work, obviously, from my perspective, and a lot of folks listening and a part of our girl boss community, they, they listen because they want to learn more about how they can navigate work and define success on their own terms. And just this week, Spain actually approved plans to become the first European country to introduce paid menstrual leave. What are your thoughts on this? Well, I think it's very exciting that at upper levels of government, people are talking about periods and, you know, the limitations of period pain and like the validity of that. I have very mixed feelings about menstrual leave and paid menstrual leave, because I think that we've seen examples in the world, especially in South Korea, Japan, where paid menstrual leave was experimented with, and it led to less menstruators being promoted or respected at work. It's this double-edged sword where if you enshrine into law that menstruators are maybe you know less able to work 25% of the time, it becomes a consideration in decision-makers who in this patriarchal world are mostly non-menstruators. So I think menstrual leave is important. I think that people should be able to have paid leave if they do not feel well, right? I think that as we've seen examples of paid leave, I don't think that in whole countries where this has happened, there's an example of it working really positively. I think that what is needed, but I don't know if it's possible, is just a reimagining of work, right? Like if we just change society to think, hey, if you aren't feeling well, you shouldn't work, right? And we have systems that support people being able to do that. Just working and having that be around mental health, having that be around periods. I don't know if we can get there because that's like an extreme shift from like core elements of capitalism. 
but yeah, I honestly, like I celebrate menstrual leave in terms of, I think it's so great that we're having the conversation, but it makes me nervous to be honest, just because if you really look at examples where menstrual leave has been implemented and when you talk to decision makers about menstrual leave being implemented, it also limits a lot of possibilities. And I think it also validates a lot of misogynistic beliefs that primarily women are less capable and that when you're on your period, you're less capable. I don't think that's true. I think that it's like, how do you balance this being really understanding about period pain and needing that, but also reinforced that it's not about how much time you put into work, but it's really about bringing your whole self to work. And I just don't think that we're there yet. It's really challenging. Yeah, I totally agree. I think that a lot of HR folks will sit on panels. I actually saw a TikTok that went viral about this. And it was like the HR person was like, bring your whole self to work. But this is like a white hat cis woman who's non-disabled. And I think that it's very easy to say when you aren't necessarily part of like many intersections of historically marginalized communities and showing up to work and how bringing your whole self to work oftentimes puts you at more risk of being on the receiving end of discrimination. At Bloom, my company, we do have a period of menstrual policy, but it purely kind of focuses on addressing the issue around access to period and menstrual products versus centering it around having access to leave. I mean, I'm the owner of the business. I would never discriminate against someone for needing to take time off. I have endometriosis, I'm anemic, and I have fibroids. So I get it. And I know the pain is very, very, very real. But with that said, I think there's a certain level of disclosure and self-identification that goes along with that that might make people feel uncomfortable. So I think that it's better to your point, reimagining what work looks like and being more flexible and understanding as to when people cannot work. And then also just having systems in place where things are a little bit more flexible, like being supportive of people working remotely if they can't physically go into the office space. Or, you know, for example, at Bloom, we have a four-day work week. That helps as well. One of my really close friends actually asked me recently when I talked about this, okay, but that only works in small teams where people are not blue collar workers doing very, very specific labor, right? Where like you clock in and clock out. And that was actually a really great privilege check for me, because I think that oftentimes when I think about this, I think about it in the setting of being a startup where everybody has a very, very different role and people aren't valued by like the time they spend on an assembly line. And so I think that there's a lot that I still have to learn about the issue. One of the things that I've actually been really interested in is our nonprofit partner, No More Secrets, which is a nonprofit in Philly led by this woman named Lynette Medley. She talks a lot about the need for more bathroom breaks, where like a lot of the women that she serves aren't allowed to take bathroom breaks more than twice a day. I think that there's so much progress to be made for labor like that, where it's like, how do you take off any limitations on needing to go to the bathroom because you can't hold in your period blood? But also, why aren't there period products stocked in those restrooms? And in jobs like that, what is the consideration when you talk about period leave, right? If you create period leave, right, like in warehouses or manufacturing facilities where like people are valued literally by the amount of hours they put in, or you're motivated by capitalist world to get cheaper labor, to get labor that has less turnover, you're inherently going to be looking more at non-menstruators. Period leave could potentially be a really, really, really challenging thing. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. And I think that one of the most disheartening parts of broader conversations around work and workplaces 
is that a lot of the conversations that are happening right now are centered around knowledge-based workers and not people that work in blue-collar type environments. It's really concerning because ultimately a lot of conversations we're having about remodeling and reimagining the workforce isn't actually going to serve in my personal opinion, the most marginalized people. We have had like a very long conversation. I feel like I could literally talk to you for days and days and days. <laughs> but I, I, at Girlboss, we're all about redefining success on your own terms. And I'm curious because you've just accomplished so much. When was the first time that you actually felt successful? I think I felt successful in fifth grade in my elementary school, Chapman Elementary in Portland, Oregon. The school play was a really big deal, and it was a mandatory school play that everybody from third through fifth grade was required to participate in, and it was like a huge deal, right? Like it was like what the school was known for, and in fifth grade, my first year there, I got cast as Alice in Alice in Wonderland, and I think that was a really big turning point for me at like 10 years old of being like, wow, I really like being on stages. And like, I have this performer in me that like, I get a lot of fulfillment from that. And it was a really big confidence boost. And I think like really got me over any sort of shyness that I had up until that point. Mm. And how has your definition of success changed since becoming an entrepreneur? When I started my actual career, success was very tied to metrics, right? It was about, I wouldn't even say money. It was like the number of period products that we put out the amount of money that we raised, the amount of chapters we registered, the amount of volunteers we had. There was no part of me that considered personal life or satisfaction part of that success. And I think that one of my big learnings over my girl boss, negative connotation of girl boss years, was honestly realizing that like by not considering my personal fulfillment or like well-being as part of that idea of success, I was harming others, right? Because I wasn't the most mindful leader. I was not setting the best example in terms of the work culture I wanted, I believe in. And so I think that after many burnout experiences, my idea of success has really shifted. And now it's more like, I want to be growing thoughtfully. It's not just like grow, 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 grow. It's like, how do I grow thoughtfully and sustainably? But also like, I think my biggest win over this last year was that I slept eight to 10 hours a night. And that's huge. I used to sleep two hours a night. And if I felt like I slept in, I would like punish myself by pulling an all nighter the next night. I am successful because I can afford to sleep in. I can afford to sleep a lot. I can celebrate that. And I feel really proud of that. Yeah, absolutely. I think that rest is so important in many forms. And I think that I did that too. When I first started Bloom, I would pull on nighters and feel like almost a higher sense of accomplishment because I was working so much. But I read The Body Keeps Score and this book talks about like the real impact of not sleeping. And it has like a detrimental impact on your overall health, not for like a couple of years, for like your lifetime. So yeah, I always talk about books that I've read that have changed my life. The Body Keeps Scores, although a bit of a technical read and challenging to get through, it is 100% worth it. It will change your life. It changed my life. I, I feel like I'm so obsessed with my yoga practice because of The Body Keeps a Score. And I wrote down the other books that you mentioned, the Who Cooked the Last Supper and Think Again, because I also have all about my book recommendations. Another one I'll throw in is the book Pleasure Activism by Adrienne Marie Brown, which to me just really taught me how standing up against capitalist systems is really on an individual level. So finding joy, orgasming, resting, sleeping. And I think I really needed that book to validate like, okay, 
me taking a rest or sleeping more is not a waste of time. And it's not me being lazy, but like, not only is it good for my health, it's like an act of resistance. And yeah, it was a really powerful book for me. Love that book. Totally co-sign. I wanted to do a quick rapid fire for you. And then I have an ask a girl boss question for you from someone from our girl boss community. So first and foremost, rapid fire, what is your go-to snack when you are on your period? Cheese. Ooh, okay. What time do you typically wake up in the morning? 7.30. Ooh, morning or evening person? Evening. How many unread emails do you have in your inbox? Zero. What? Yeah, I'm an inbox zero girly. <laughs> I'm impressed. I am impressed. <laughs> so the question that we got from our girl boss community member is a really interesting one. And I think really good for you, given how active you are on TikTok and how openly you share parts of your personal life and yourself with not only your community, but beyond that. The question is this, do you have any advice for public speaking? I get very nervous and I don't want it to stop me. Ooh, that's a really good one. I would say, and I don't know if this is like the best advice. What has really helped me is that I just never prepare like I never <laughs> write down my speech. I never like write really specific bullet points. And I think all that to say, like, you really have to figure out what works for you because a lot of people will say like, oh, I need to write down my speech. I need to practice a lot. I think for me, like that advice really freaked me out because it made me feel like if I fucked up on stage or I missed a word, I was messing up versus, oh no, like I'm actually just there to share my thoughts. And I know this material so well, I prepared in other ways by just like knowing the material and believing in what I'm saying. And so when I'm on stage, like I'm really just having a conversation, like and answering a question in the way that I believe in and not like in my mind measuring, okay, what's coming next? What do I need to say? Am I saying the right thing? Following a script in my head. I don't think that's going to work for everybody. But for me, that's been a game changer because if I have a written script, even if I'm hired to host something, I cannot have a written script because I get really freaked out that like, I haven't memorized it right. I'm missing a word and I get tripped up. So for me, like, I really need to just not have that and just like speak from the heart. Love that. That's how I operate too. I feel like if you know what you're talking about, you'll feel more comfortable just showing up and speaking authentically. I also think that like I did a speaking gig once and I had a standing ovation and it was the one that I didn't even prepare for. And I was just like, what is going on here? To your point, like, honestly, you just kind of have to find what works for you and starting is better than not doing it at all. So feel the fear and do it anyway, give it a go and you'll learn and kind of grow from it, from the experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Awesome. Well, Nadia, thank you so much for taking this time to share your experience as an entrepreneur and a founder, and also just like being so vulnerable and intimate with all of us today. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, y'all. That's a wrap on my chat with Nadia. My big takeaway, when passion and frustration collide, we can truly change the world. This is not the end of the podcast. The Girl Boss team has a special segment to share right after this. So don't go away. This podcast is produced by Liz Goober and Victoria Christie and edited by Diego Domine. Until next time, keep blooming. Hello, everyone. It's Victoria, Girl Boss's senior writer. I'm popping in to share a special bonus segment with Miriam Alden, the founder and CEO of Brunette the Label, which is a women's clothing brand based in Vancouver, Canada. Miriam, welcome to Girl Boss Radio. We're so excited to have you on the podcast. Well, I'm very excited to be here. 
we both know we have some exciting news to share. And I'd love for you to be the one to officially share it with our listeners. I am so excited to announce the collaboration between Brunette the Label and Girlboss. We are doing our super cute merch line. It's going to be sweatsuits, accessories. It's so many cute things. And it's been in the works for over six months. And we just are so excited to be able to talk about it now. It's launching literally in two days. Two days! January 12th, 2023. (laughs) Let's maybe give our listeners a little sneak peek. So is there anything that you can share about the collection that can get people excited? This collection is super special because I have been a major fan of Girlboss from the very beginning and really connected at the time to like Girlboss 1.0 when it first started. But this collaboration is now very much who both Brunette the Label is and Girlboss. And it's Girlboss 2.0, which is completely different and very much all about like maintaining your boundaries and kind of evolving and going from who you were before to who you are now. And I don't want to sneak peek any of the graphics or anything that's happening, but the colors are stunning. Let's just say if you thought you were obsessed with loungewear before, going to be an all new level after this collection drops. (laughs) So for listeners who might not know about Brunette the Label, I'd love to hear about your entrepreneurial journey that got you to this point. So it was definitely a journey as any entrepreneur story is, but basically I started with one sweatshirt. I started as a marketing tool for another business that I had. I started making sweatshirts and it honestly started with one graphic, starting a brand and starting business is hard. And so it really happened super naturally and organically and went from one sweatshirt. And then I created a small little capsule of 12 sweatshirts and took it on the road and sold it to our retailers. And I remember I was going to a trade show in Las Vegas and I was wearing the first sweatshirt. And one of our retailers that I had worked with for years was like, I could totally sell that in my store. And I remember being like, oh, really? Okay. And being like, okay, maybe this is it. And, you know, I'm such a big believer that if you put what energy you put out to the world, you kind of get guided in the right direction if you're working really hard. And I feel like it was very authentic for me. The development and growth of the brand was super authentic for me. It was definitely, I had to swerve a lot. It's really interesting to me now because there's a lot of things that are part of Brunette the Label that I always wanted to have. And it was not exactly like, you know, this straight line of how I got here. It was definitely like a zigzag or maybe a shape. I have these moments where I take a step back and I'm like, well, from one sweatshirt to this collection. And I wear Brunette the Label every day in my life. Like I said, it wasn't linear, but we've kind of got here and it started with one sweatshirt. And now we're where we are now. Thank you for sharing. And obviously something that is important to acknowledge is that Brunette the Label invented the term babe supporting babes, which is (laughs) iconic. Thank you. It's funny when I, yeah, we have the trademark to it. And I remember I will never forget the first time I was like, we should put babe supporting babes on a sweatshirt. And somebody was like, "Mm, really? It was like, you know, people weren't really using the word babe at that point. The word babe was considered quite negative. We would have these like incredibly deep meaning conversations around it. And then it changed their feelings around the word. And it was so special. But I always look online to see how many like hashtags are hit babe sporting babes. And it's just become its own thing, like nothing even to do with me anymore. But having the trademark makes me feel really proud. It's so fascinating how I feel like similar of a journey that phrase has kind of been mirrored. Same with girl boss. I feel like there's so many iterations and and we try to have these really 
important conversations with the folks that we feature, asking them, what does girl boss mean to you? Kind of really unpacking that word and that definition. And so kind of going off of that, I'd love to know how your definition of girl boss has changed over the years. It's very funny that you say that, but I was so connected to Girl Boss 1.0. I remember using Babe Sporting Babes and Girl Boss like interchangeably in my life. And I remember my dad being like, but why do you have to say like Girl Boss? And I was like, okay, dad. <laughs> so at the time I really connected to it. I was working so hard. I started my business on my own. I started with, I think I had $5,000. It was gone within the first month. I had to hustle and grind so much to be able to grow my business. And I remember connecting to what girl boss meant to the other girl bosses that were connecting to that journey as well and feeling like I didn't feel so alone. And whereas now with girl boss 2.0, I really connect to that because my value system is still the same, but what kind of life I want to have and what kind of life I want from my team members is really different and how important it is to create boundaries and how important it is to create a super healthy working environment so they can thrive and grow and like work doesn't make them burn out. I don't want to have a bunch of amazing young people in my office burning out. That isn't what I'm looking for. And so I've really changed the way that I lead and I've really changed the way that I want my company to feel. I just think it's really special that this collection is launching into the beginning of a new year. It's kind of like merch that you can wear while you're like starting your new year, you know? Definitely. So just to end this special segment off, I'm sure people are excited and amped. So where will people be able to shop the collection on January 12th? So on January 12th, you can shop the collection on girlboss.com or brunettethelabel.com. So that's girlboss.com and brunettethelabel.com. Another super exciting thing is that we're going to be doing a really amazing giveaway. You can win one of each piece of the collection if you go to girlboss.com slash merch. That is girlboss.com slash merch. Amazing. And mark your calendars and we cannot wait to see you all wearing it. Tag Girlboss, tag Brunette the Label, tag Miriam on social. And we just can't wait for this to be out in the world. 